Good morning, Covenant College. Bonus chapel. Here we are. I love bonus chapel. It's my pleasure uh, to introduce to you again Dr. Vince Bacote, who serves on the theology faculty at Wheaton College. He is on campus uh, this week to inaugurate what will become our annual Kuiper Lectures. You learned yesterday that Dr. Bacote loves rock and roll music. But what he didn't tell you is how much he loves high adventure and high-risk outdoor activities, especially those involving mountain bluffs and other death-defying locations. When he's not writing books about eschatology or listening to Iron Maiden, I guess, uh, Dr. Bacote may be found rappelling down a rocky mountain face, cliff face or parachuting out an airplane. Actually, that's not true at all. <laughs> but that's a story for another day. He doesn't like any of those things. In fact, he hates them, and he's not terribly excited about being on this mountain. Um, but I'll let him talk about that. Before Dr. Baco comes back up here for his final lecture, let me, say, uh, let me say one thing, in all seriousness, that is true. I've known uh, Vince for almost 25 years. Uh, we were students together at, Tr at seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and our doctoral programs and our academic careers so sort of followed a similar timeline. Uh, so I knew Vince uh, as a student uh, and thought back then that he was very bright and very thoughtful and expected that he would have a bright future. But it frankly never occurred to me that he was going to become such a significant thought leader within American evangelicalism. Uh, Vince has become, to put it plainly, a very big deal. Uh, among the most highly respected voices on ethics and public life working today in American Christianity. As I thought about that, I wanted to encourage you, as you look around at your friends, uh, and maybe even think about your own life, um, you don't know what might become and what God might have in store for you. Uh, you have no idea now, but some of um, some of your friends, and maybe even you, uh, God may be preparing for significant positions of leadership. Don't underestimate your friends uh, or yourselves or how God may intend to use them and you in the future. Uh, I thank God for Vince and the opportunity he's been given to use his considerable gifts to challenge believers around the country, and I'm very pleased that he's chosen to take some time to do so with us. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Vince Bacob. Well, welcome to what, you know, Jay called it the bonus chapel. I had my own label for it, which is the boutique chapel, right? You know, if something has boutique in front of it, you know, it's special, right? And it's, you know, exclusive. So, uh, not, that, not, that, not that this message, I hopefully, is, is exclusive. Jay, thank you for that very kind uh, introduction. Um, I don't really quite know what to say about various parts of that introduction. Uh, but he is right that um, heights are not my favorite thing. Uh, I mean, I love flying. That's great, like in planes. Um, ledges are not so great for me. But I do love the view from up here. 
very, very beautiful. So, so I can appreciate that as long as I'm not at the precipice feeling like I'm going to uh, tumble down the mountain. So, uh, yes, that's true. I, there are stories that uh, <laughs> I could tell you. Not the falling down a mountain, thankfully. So uh, for, for this last uh, talk here, uh, I call it Neo-Calvinism's gift for our future, and it's because I do think that the legacy that comes out of Kuiper, which gets called Neo-Calvinism because it's not just about cutting and pasting something from the past. That's why I got called Neo-Calvinism. Some people, for some people it was a compliment, for other people it was an insult, actually, for Kuiper. Um, but uh, I'm on the compliment side. Uh, but I think it really does prevent, uh, present opportunities uh, for us as we think about uh, going forward as faithful people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul has what could seem to be an audacious thing to say. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. In some translations, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And when I think about uh, neo-Calvinism as a particular tradition or trajectory uh, of, of Christian faithfulness, I, I want us to think about it as you know, being a gift because it's a gift as a way of thinking about how we are trying to, in, with increasing faithfulness, follow Christ as others have followed Christ. And hopefully as we follow Christ, Others will follow us. So there are a number of dimensions of neo-Calvinism that I want to point out that I think are part of this gift for the future. The first, I do want to use a quote from Al Walters. Some of you have read a book called Creation Regained. And Al Walters, about six or seven years ago, uh, said this about neo-Calvinism. Neo-Calvinism is not just some idiosyncratic sectarian movement rooted in 19th century Holland. It is one manifestation of a broad strand of Catholic little c Christianity, which goes back to church fathers such as Irenaeus, John Chrysostom, and Augustine of Hippo. To be sure, neo-Calvinism as a distinct cultural movement has its roots in the Netherlands, and the work of men such as Guillaume Chron von Prinsterer, Abram Kuyper, and Hermann Bavink, but its religious antecedents are much earlier and more Catholic than that. As I see it, neo-Calvinism is a kind of distinctive focusing in, in a particular historical situation characterized by ideological modernism and societal differentiation, think pluralism, of a basic Christian intuition with respect to the relationship of creation and redemption, nature and grace. So, translation, neo-Calvinism is a tradition, a tradition that emerges out of the Netherlands and uh, a, a tradition that's helping us to try to think about the fullness of the faith and practicing the fullness of the faith with fidelity to God's world. Think about it that way. So, in that regard, here, here's the first thing I want to say about the gift of neo-Calvinism for the future, and this is an important thing. Number one, neo-Calvinism takes 
the world seriously, and it helps us to take all of life seriously. At one level, I'm just kind of repeating what I said in chapel yesterday when I say that, but I think it bears repeating again and again and again and again. Because chances are, some of you may go to churches or have come from churches that I will say tempt you, or in some cases, under the guise of being spiritual, browbeat you spiritually into not taking life in the world seriously. But neo-Calvinism helps us to see that our life in God's world ought to be taken with great seriousness. And here's the simple reason why. Because it's God's world. That's why. Genesis 1.31, God makes the creation. He says it's very good. Now, qualification. We live in a culture of superlatives. Perhaps some of you love to use the word great, or maybe beyond that, the word awesome. In a culture where everything's awesome, to say, for God to say that the creation is very good might make you think, well, what did God really think about the creation anyway? No. Very good means what very good meant like 40 years ago. There's good, and then you put very in front of it, which means it's not simply good, it's very good. Translation, it's awesome! That's what God meant in Genesis 1.31. In Genesis 3, because sin happens, doesn't mean that God stops thinking his creation is awesome. It's still his creation. Think about it this way. It's awesome but fallen. But it's still awesome because it's God's creation. And because it's God's creation, if there's a tradition that is helping us to follow God, to follow Christ in God's world— then we ought to be thankful for that tradition because it tells us that our life in this world that is God's world absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. It is not to be treated as insignificant. So neocalvinism helps us to take the world seriously, to take all of our life seriously. You know, there's an interesting thing that can happen when you're young, like most of you in here. I remember those days. The, the, the challenge that can sometimes happen when you're young is you think, I've got time to get serious later. All right? So please understand when I say this. Get serious now. Get serious now. Because every day matters. Every day matters. Every day is a stewardship opportunity for living life with fidelity to God in his world. Now, please understand, when I say that, I don't mean become a person who's oppressed by your own perfectionism and aspirations. That's not what I mean. What I mean is just reckoning with the fact that each day is a gift. And if it's really a gift, treat it like the gift that it is. Don't treat it like trash. Don't treat it as it being insignificant because it's your life in God's world. Treat it like the gift that it is. Neo-Calvinism helps us to think about treating our lives with that kind of care, with that kind of seriousness. Number two, this is really important. Remember I said neo-Calvinism is a tradition. 
And Neo-Calvinism, out of Kuiper, emerges with the view that we are stewards of a living legacy. You remember I said that Neo-Calvinism isn't just cutting and pasting. If you just cut and paste a tradition, here's what you're saying. What was said 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, whoever, whoever your favorite theologians are, I'll just take what they said, then I'll cut that, and I'll paste it into the present now, and all I need to do is just repeat, 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 repeat. And I don't raise the question about what does fidelity to God mean now in light of the challenges that emerge from me now, like the people that I'm quoting were addressing the challenges that they had to deal with then. So here's how, the way that Kuiper put it. What the descendants of the old Dutch Calvinists as well as the Pilgrim Fathers have to do is not to copy the past as if Calvinism were a, a petrifaction, he says. Think the word petrified, like petrified forest, right? Frozen. As if Calvinism were a petrifaction, but to go back to the living root of the Calvinist plant, to clean and water it, and so to cause it to bud and blossom once more. Now fully in accordance with our actual life in these modern times and with the demands of the times to come. Now, Kuiper was a person with a very strong personality, who sometimes, even though he said this, might have sounded like all, all the people needed to do was basically just go with his ideas and everybody would be okay. That's not really what he meant. He did recognize that he was part of a living tradition. If you're part of a living tradition, yes, you recognize you stand on the shoulders of others, but you also recognize that as you stand on their shoulders, you have to deal with where you are and the world that you are inhabiting and the moment that you are inhabiting. You have to think about your context. So we need to know the Bible. We need to know the shoulders on which we stand. But like Kuiper, we shouldn't just cut and paste. We have to look at the world as it is changing and to think about how to bring the faith to bear on our current moment. So my goal as a Kuiperian is far from trying to just repeat everything that Kuiper did, but to consider how to bring the best dimensions of neo-Calvinism forward and bring it to bear on life in our world. So what might this look like? Here's one example that occurs to me. So um, I think we can say that we're in a time where Christians are confused about what they ought to be doing with public life. I think we, I think we, we, can, we can agree with that. The interface of a central tension in Kuiper can actually help us here. If you read in Kuiper, you'll discover that there are people who, who like Kuiper who, who are what you would call uh, common grace Kuiperians and antithesis Kuiperians. Common grace Kuiperians are people who say, let's go into all the world. The world is ours. Let's get after it. And they're excited about getting after it. Antithesis Kuiperians are ones who recognize the distinctiveness of Christian identity. You might almost say that they're kind of like activist Mennonites sometimes with the way that they think about reckoning with the distinctiveness of Christian identity. But Kuiper talked about both. 
In his work, because Kuiper wrote for the occasion, he didn't actually talk about how you make those two sides of his thinking work together. But what I want to suggest is that Kuiper can help us here by recognizing that there are both of those sides and that as we try to bring them together, we recognize that, of course, we need to go into God's world. But we also need to reckon with the fact that we are people who belong to God when we get there. And that we don't forget our identity as Christians when we are participating in God's world. That identity absolutely matters. So part of what that means then is when I participate in the political processes in the United States, as much as I care about the political processes of the United States, when I'm involved in the political processes or cultural processes or economic or financial or legal or medical, etc., when I'm involved in all of those, what I do is also recognize that because I am a Christian, and that is the centerpiece of my identity, all other allegiances are relative. All of them. So what that means is, please care about the United States. But did you know that there are Christians outside the United States? And what do you expect Christians outside the United States to think about the countries they live in? Do you expect those people to care about their countries? to have fidelity to their countries, or do you think that they should be having fidelity to our interests? What do you think? It's not something that we often talk about when we're thinking about Christians being publicly engaged, but we've got to think about that. And if we actually reckon with the fact that our first allegiance is to God, then we can recognize that, wait, yes, I need to care about here, other Christians need to care about there. But we all, as Christians, have a higher allegiance. And that higher allegiance means, yes, I care about my interests here. But you know what? I care about interests beyond here, too. And I've got to think about how we live in a world with all those interests. That would really be something if Christians were known for thinking about their public political posture in that way. The last part of this, about that political dimension, I want to say is this. Because we recognize our ultimate allegiance, and our allegiance is to Jesus, who is the Messiah, we cannot confuse any political party or candidate with messianic pretensions or expectations. It has to be relativized. Lower your expectations of what you're thinking. Are you really thinking that by going to the ballot, you are going to actually deliver the fullness of the kingdom of God? That's a little bit of, a, of a, an excessive expectation, I think. Or actually more than a little. Yes, it's an act of faithfulness. Please be involved in, in public and political life. But don't think you're delivering the kingdom by politics. Now, another dimension that... I just want to reiterate what I just said is this. Neo-Calvinism needs to be sensitive because if it is a world-affirming faith, which it is, it needs to be sensitive to context outside the West. And I think Kuiper would actually agree with that. 
But what we have to reckon with then is that if you're sensitive to context outside the West, the way that Christians operate as people who are faithful in public is going to have a whole lot of different faces, whole lots of different attire, lots of different interests, lots of different applications. There's no one size fits all. We have to reckon with the diversity that will take place if people are living out faithfulness to God in his world all around the world. A hazard to avoid as part of neo-Calvinism, but that is part of the gift if we avoid the hazard. Neo-Calvinism is sometimes very heady. And for some neo-Calvinists, what they have heard is that in being heady, what they don't want to do, they don't want to be like these overly heart-oriented, pietistic Christians. For some neo-Calvinists, the word piety is like a curse word. Because they think, oh, those pietists who don't care about a thoughtful faith, who don't really even care that much about a public life, all they care about is being in their spiritually warm-hearted enclave. Okay? You don't respond to one overreaction with another one. And then say, so what we'll do is we'll make our discipleship all about the public We'll make our discipleship all about being people who think really well, and we will make it problematic when people talk about taking church seriously. No, neo-Calvinism should bring together, and can bring together, deep, warm-hearted piety, great, deep thinking, a dense, thick doctrine of the church, and a great and faithful public practice. Those things do not have to be seen as intention with each other. But in neo-Calvinism, there's a lot of work to be done to overcome that hazard. If we overcome that hazard, what a gift neo-Calvinism can provide to the world. You don't have to choose between being too earthly-minded and no heavenly good, or being so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. It's a false choice. Then there's this that kind of goes with the mindfulness. Neo-Calvinism has the possibility and opportunity to make worldview something that isn't just about thinking. One of the criticisms that some people make about worldview thinking is that it's just about getting your thoughts right. Here's the way Andy Crouch put it. You would think that the solution to disembodiment would be embodiment, the living out in the flesh of the transforming vision. And indeed, every Christian proponent of worldview thinking gestures enthusiastically in this direction. But the emphasis always somehow stays on perception and vision, on thinking, on analysis. Is it really true that simply perceiving the comprehensiveness of the Christian worldview would transform the world? Or is there a middle step that's being skipped over all too lightly? The language of worldview tends to imply, to paraphrase the Catholic writer Richard Rohr, that we can think our way into new ways of behaving. Theo Planiga put it this way, I would be more impressed by grandiose worldview claims if I saw them carried out in everyday life and spirituality. 
All too often, it looks like an academic, rationalistic business with a practical dualism still in place. When you fall ill, pray, that's the religious part, and do whatever your doctor tells you to do, the secular part. Making worldview as much about practice as about belief could be a great development to help us embody greater fidelity to God and his world. One of the greatest problems is people who are all about worldview and deficient in practice. They're great about getting the frame right, getting the language right, getting the concepts right, and that's it. You know, my friend Carl Ellis is here, and the way he put it is like this. With theology, there are some people, they're like your epistemological people, right? It's about what you think. And then there's your ethical or practical people. But the fact is, those two sides of the coin are supposed to be together, not choose a side. And worldview doesn't have to just be about epistemology. Worldview can be about practice. We have to change the label. But the fact is, all this thinking that's really good is a shame if all of it is is just about how you see things and then you leave in place the great challenges that are before us in this world. Next, we're getting close to the end, I promise. Neo-Calvinism can help us navigate an increasingly pluralistic and globalized world. So Kuiper talked about the pluralism in his time by this language of sphere sovereignty. You can read about that later. The, the, the important point is this, is to recognize that in this pluralistic world where you live with people that, just aren't, that aren't only your people, you can think about how do you order a society where it's not just you in that world. And you can think about being creative about how you order that society, how you have justice in that society, not just for you, but for everyone. One of the great challenges that we have right now with all the talk about religious freedom is that, think about this, are you really thinking about religious freedom for people that aren't Christians? Or are you only thinking about religious freedom for Christians? Neo-Calvinism reckons with that pluralism. And that's the dimension that we can important develop in our time to consider how to navigate this increasingly globalized and connected and plural world. To repeat a challenge from yesterday, neo-Calvinism can and must deliver on its promise where it's possible to address the scandal of racial and ethnic conflict. It is a tradition that can, can do better than Kuiper on this. Can do better than Kuiper this by, by helping people to become those who put into practice a way of living in God's world when it comes to race and ethnicity, where what they do is actually live into the faith that they confess. And in living into that faith that they confess, it pulls them out and away from the gravitational pull of their cultural and racial and ethnic commitments. It's possible. The language is there in neo-Calvinism. 
Read what Kuiper says about what it means because all humans are created in the image of God and what kind of society ought to emerge from that if you really take that view of humans seriously. He stated that, but he really couldn't get past his own cultural biases. We can do better. And you don't do better by jettisoning Kuiper. You do better by reckoning with his clay feet and discovering, saying, hey, remember that part you didn't do so well? We're going to do so well. We're going to do it better. All right, we're getting close, I promise. Two more things. By reckoning with the fact that there are dimensions of tradition that can be changed, that can be improved, where we can do better, neo-Calvinism can be a gift by displaying humility. The humility that says it's important to keep asking when I'm trying, as Neo-Calvin has the expression of follow me as I follow Christ, I'm asking, how do I keep following Christ better? And maybe I can follow Christ better by looking at what I've already done and saying, well, maybe it was okay, but you know what? Maybe it needs to be revised. Maybe I've discovered things that I can improve, things that I can refine. And that if I do that, hey, we're showing greater fidelity greater commitment to God, a greater living witness, greater transformative practice, but always aware that revision ought to be typical rather than exceptional. That doesn't mean getting rid of deep doctrines and things like that. What it means is, is that because I recognize I need to be faithful in God's world, and as history goes on and as challenges present themselves to us, either old challenges in new forms or new challenges we haven't thought of before, I keep asking, what does fidelity to God in his world look like now? And how can I improve upon what I've been given? To have the humility to recognize that, yes, I might have something good, but that the good can even be a whole lot better. What an example that is, instead of saying, I stand with Kuiper and I'm not changing anything. Don't be prideful. Don't make Kuiper an idol. Worship God. Be humble and be willing to say, let's work on revising the tradition. Finally, neo-Calvinism can lead us to be more Trinitarian in our belief and practice. But are we willing to be those people? So here's what I mean. Here's the translation of what I just said. Don't be afraid of the third person of the Trinity. Kuiper wrote on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He was no charismatic for sure, but he did write about it. He said, you know, we praise the Father and the Son, but we live so little in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your friend, not your enemy. Whatever you think about Pentecostals and Charismatics, those of you who are Pentecostals and Charismatics, you, 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 I guess you've had the experience here, but whatever 
you think about Pentecostals and Charismatics, okay? That doesn't determine whether you should be open to God's Spirit or not. The question is, are you actually going to live up to your Trinitarian confession? Because last time I checked, we worship three persons that are equal in power and glory. Not two persons that are equal in power and a third one that we ignore. If we're really Trinitarian, then we are open to the fullness of what the Spirit has for us. And what the Spirit has for us, actually, is what the Spirit makes possible through common grace for living in God's world, and what the Spirit makes possible through particular grace in making us alive to live faithfully in God's world. And my question is, are you, do you really want to be people that are made alive by God? I mean, you sing these songs, do you really want to say to God, listen, you have your way with me in your world, absolutely. I don't understand necessarily what you're going to do if I say, Spirit, have your way, but you go do it because I really trust you, the God who is over everything. Or will you say, please let me be a cold, rationalistic, controlling Christian who instead decides I will control my life instead of God controlling my life. If you are going to be fully Trinitarian, you must say to God, take my life, really, and let it be consecrated to you. And if it's consecrated to him, really consecrated to him, where you say, fill me with your spirit, empower me, enable me, help me to see, help me to think about how to use the gifts, talents, and abilities you've given me by this spirit to live with increasing fidelity in your church and in your world. You better believe that that will be a gift to the world. And that's a gift that I believe can be part of the legacy of neo-Calvinism. If we just let it. Don't be afraid. Or maybe it's okay to be afraid. But don't be resistant. Be open. Let God have his way with you in his world. And let him, through what he does, help you to put into practice ways that living with fidelity and creativity and transformative vision and practice to be people who show that, indeed, neo-Calvinism is one tradition where you can say, this is how I tell others, follow me as I follow Christ. Let us pray. Lord, Thank you for those that have come before us in all kinds of traditions, and in this case, for what you've done through Abraham Kuyper. We thank you that, in spite of his imperfections, you gifted him tremendously. You gave him a great pen. And there's much through what you've done with him and those who followed him that sets the stage for us to follow you with fidelity in your world. Lord, help us to be those humbly coming before you, open to you, invoking your spirit to transform us and enable us to live with fidelity to you.
to demonstrate our love for you, our desire for you to be glorified, not just by confessing the faith, but by practicing our faith as much as we confess it. May we be those of who it is said that we sought to not just to know about you, but to know you and to be witnesses for you through what we say and through what we do. We praise the name of Christ. Amen. It's great to be with you.